Good morning, I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. It's good to have you with us here today for the Congregation of Prayer, a guide for daily meditation and prayer around God's Word. It is, what day? Saturday, January 28th, 2023. And today our Congregation of Prayer will be considering tomorrow's Old Testament and Epistle reading with a little emphasis as well um, on the Gospel maybe one of the ways to understand what's going on at the Mount of Transfiguration. I mentioned this yesterday. Uh, Tomorrow we celebrate Transfiguration Sunday. Our lectionary, um, which is sometimes called the historic one year, regardless of how historic it is, um, it was the lectionary that we used up until the Second Vatican Council, the Roman Catholic Church, and their revised common lectionary, which we revised further for our own use, uh, which is a three-year series. What I prefer to do is uh, Sundays, we repeat the same cycle year after year, but then the weekly daily prayer follows a three-year cycle of readings. And uh, actually that, even more than the three-year Sunday series, maximizes the uh, amount of scripture that you end up um, hearing and studying and learning. All right, so um, probably through the three-year series, I think in total, you, you actually hear 40% more um, it's not actually three times as much more because most of the readings you hear throughout the year are the same, just from uh, another gospel. And so um, I tend to do that. I tend to look at the parallel texts. So even if we hear read in Sunday in the Sunday um, gospel, the Matthew text, I, I will compare it to the Luke and the Mark and if it is in John as well. All right. So um, the same thing can happen with the transfiguration. There's a uh, different ways of expressing. For example, tomorrow you'll hear about his clothes being gleaming white. Uh, Luke has a particular way of saying it versus, say, Matthew. All right. And so it's not really hearing four, the story three different ways. It's maybe hearing, well, you're hearing the same story three different ways, not necessarily three different stories year after year, if that makes sense. Anyway, um, in the one-year series, the Transfiguration comes the Sunday before the three uh, pre-Lent Sundays, sometimes called the Gesimas, so Septuagesima, Sexagesima, and Quinquagesima. Um, Septua, 70 days, or seven, yeah, 70 days. Um, Sexagesima, 60 days, and Quinquagesima, 50 days. But you say it's a week. Yeah, the church isn't good at math. You've heard that joke from me before, but so it is. Um, the significance of 70, 60, and 50 are the 70 years of exile um, for the northern uh, king um, tribes, right? And first Assyria, then Babylon. And uh, <clears throat> so the long exile of of Babylon is the 70. That's what we're drawing attention to. And of course, the 40 days of Lent, beginning with Ash Wednesday, drawing significance maybe from the flood, but also uh, especially from the uh, 40 days of exile, wander, 40 years of, of wandering in the wilderness of Sinai, um, you might also connect to the 400 or so years of uh, that the people of Jacob of Israel were in Egypt, which we've been studying with the Joseph narrative. So lots of numerology, if you like there, just numerical significance. This would be comparable, this is all by way of introduction, this would be comparable to uh, the way that Paul says, I think in 1 Corinthians, that Christ was raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. According to what scriptures does it say that Jesus will rise from the dead? He's not referring, uh, it's not referring to the Gospels, I don't believe. 
Although it is testified clearly in the Gospels, and Jesus repeatedly say that the Christ would suffer and rise again on the third day, right, in his passion predictions. It's referring to the three days that is testified throughout all of the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. So uh, I try to draw your attention to that every time in in the story we see after three days or on the third day, you see that that pattern has been established even from creation, the first three days of creation, the second three days of creation, and then on the seventh day he rests. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, Numbers matter in that they draw your attention um, to other portions of scripture for meaning, for for amplification, for um, description. So anyway, and we'll see the same sort of thing happen with the transfiguration tomorrow. So let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Memory verse. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved himself, loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2 verse 20. All right, once more, for the sake of memory. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2, verse 20. Our psalm this week is Psalm 97. And as I said, this was our intro. It used portions of it were our intro at Psalm last Sunday. But you're actually going to see that it, it has strong connections to the Transfiguration, which is this Sunday as well. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. All worshippers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. All right, so to the point, um, listen to this meditation from um, Patrick Henry Reardon, an excellent little book called Christ in the Psalms, a good uh, devotional resource for you as you pray the Psalms each day. Here's what he has to say about this psalm. Psalm 96, Hebrew 97, is one of those Old Testament texts explicitly interpreted for us in the New Testament. The epistle to the Hebrews telling how, quote, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past 
by or to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. That's Hebrews 1. He went on to tell of the reverence and service shown to this son by the holy angels as he entered into the world through the incarnation. But when he again brings the firstborn, the prototokos, into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Hebrews 1, 2, 1, 1, 2, and 6. This quotation is, of course, from Psalm 96, which the author of the Hebrews hears interprets with reference to that ministry of the angelic host to the incarnate Lord. The relationship of the angels to Christ is the dominant motif in the first chapter of Hebrews. The Gospels also treat explicitly with this theme. Matthew, for instance, tells of the ministry of the announcing angel just prior to the birth of the firstborn, or excuse me, the first begotten, the prototokos, Matthew 1, 20-25. Similarly, Luke describes how the mother of Jesus placed the first begotten, the prototokos, in the manger, his entry into the world then being announced by the angels. Luke 2, 7-13. The ministry of the angels in the life of Jesus is a standard motif in the Gospels, especially near the beginnings and final pages. Thus, in the Gospel of Mark, the service of the angels to Jesus at the commencement of his ministry, 1, verse 13, finds its parallel later on the empty tomb, 16, verse 5. The Gospel of Matthew is structured with a similar parallelism, Matthew 1, 20, and 28, 2. Luke, on the other hand, not only has this identical uh, diptych framing his work, Luke 1, 26, 24, 4, but all, he also introduces the ministry of the angel in the context of our Lord's passion, the angel of the agony, the angels ministering to him in the garden, right? 22, verse 43. Nor is this theme of the angels in relationship to Christ, our Lord, alien to the thought of St. Paul. When in Colossians, the apostle refers to Jesus as the first begotten, prototokos, he goes on immediately to speak of his relationship to the angelic powers. Quote, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, think Nicene Creed, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Uh, Colossians 1, 15 and 16. By the way, um, he assumes you know this, but thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers are four categories of angels. You're like, what? Thrones? We actually talked about the thrones being a um, a kind of angel in um, our study of Ezekiel. We talked about this with the with the the wheels of of the throne um, having faces and wings and hands. Yeah. So thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers are are classifications of angels or angelic beings. All right. Thanks to its being quoted by the Epistle to the Hebrews, then we know that the theological context in which the early Christians prayed Psalm 96, which was understood by them as referring to the incarnation of the first begotten, the prototokos. So it's appropriate during Epiphany, it's appropriate during Christmas to pray this psalm. The appearance of the king into this world brings joy to the whole earth. The Lord is king, let the earth be, be glad. Let the many islands or coastlands rejoice. Indeed, this is the very message of the angels at the birth of the Lord. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The universality of his kingship includes both men and angels. The incarnation means, first of all, that God is forever present to creation, especially humanity, in a new way. There is now a most special sense in which man stands before him, since he has joined himself inseparably to our nature, divinity and humanity, United indissolubly, 
dissolubly, that's a hard word, in a single person. Quote, God with us, Emmanuel, is how the Gospel of Matthew begins. And behold, I am with you always, all, with you all days, always, Matthew, is how it ends. Our first psalm, excuse me, our psalm is likewise preoccupied with the presence of God in our midst. And here to our point for tomorrow. Fire will go before him, the mountains melted like wax from before the face of the Lord. From before the face of the Lord all the earth, the heavens declared his justice and the peoples have seen, all peoples have seen his glory. The threatening brightness of God's presence puts one in mind of John's inaugural vision of Christ at the beginning of Revelation. One will also be reminded of the bright cloud of the Lord's transfiguration on the mountain. By the line of this psalm, clouds and darkness are round about him. I also thought uh, lightnings light up the world. God's appearance in this world, says our psalm, is the source of joy for those who wait for him in purity of life. Light has risen for the just man and gladness for those upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you just ones, and confess the memory of his holiness. Men and angels join together in common adoration at God's supreme manifestation in the incarnate Son. All right, so quite a bit more on the psalm there, but now you get the idea. Our sacrament, uh, excuse me, our catechism for the week is the sacrament of holy baptism. And this question, what does such baptizing with water indicate? It indicates that the old Adam in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires, and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. Where is this written? St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. All right, we've talked at length about that. All right. So our Old Testament for tomorrow is from Exodus 34. Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Jesus did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out, and he would come out and speak to the children of Israel whatever he had been commanded. And Whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. All right. So we have uh, the glory of the Lord shining in the face of Moses, right? So Moses goes, dwells in the the presence of God, receives the word from God, um, uh, annotates it onto tablets of stone, as it says here, the testimony, and having been in the presence of the Lord, when he comes to speak that word to the people, the people see in Moses' face that shining um, of God's glory. But notice what they ask. They ask that the glory be um, that the glory be veiled, right? They don't want to receive um, the word that Moses speaks, or rather, they want it to be um, hidden from them or veiled from them, right? because um, it is the word of the law, right? The Torah and the law brings 
accusation, judgment, condemnation, um, and apart from forgiveness, damnation, right? So, um, so of course, they don't want to listen to Moses. We forget, um, as Paul rightly uh, confesses in, in Galatians and in Romans, that the law brings knowledge of sin, that it increases trespasses. It doesn't deliver us from death. It leads us into death, right? And so it's terrifying. Um, there are many who would say, well, no, now for the Christian, right? And including our confession, by the way, our uh, Formula of Concord, Article 11. Now for the Christian, the law um, has a pedagogical use, an instructive use, all right? Yes, but it instructs us to death. It always, always um, accuses and thus always drives us back uh, well, drives us either into despair and anguish over our sin, um, but barring faith in Christ, uh, that's where we would be, leading into death. But because of faith, on account of faith, we are are driven back to the article of justification, faith in the gospel, forgiveness for forgiveness of sins. Right. So even the the pedagogy of the law, the teaching of the law, um, leads us to confess our sins and <laughs> repent for the sake of forgiveness that we have freely in Christ Jesus. Um, I have to respond to something on Twitch here, so just give me a minute. Rhetorical question. There we go. Uh, <laughs> there's an interesting question. It's a big conversation. Uh, it's not really pertinent to what we're doing here, so I'm just going to give a simple answer for now. Uh, maybe we'll get a fuller answer in another video someday. All right. Uh, let's see here. So, yeah, this is the nature of the law, and we're going to talk more about this. And I think uh, St. Peter misunderstands this topic as well um, with his response to the unveiled glory of Jesus, um, and uh, especially in John's gospel, which is an important topic, and we've talked about this frequently. Um, John has in mind, he does not account, or does not give us an account of the transfiguration. And I think the reason for that, again, this is a little speculative, is that the glory, according to John's gospel, um, is not revealed until the hour and the hour is as the time of Christ's suffering and death. So the glory that was manifest to us, John chapter 1, in the person of Jesus, is known in the cross of Christ. All right, uh, let's see. So then uh, St. Peter's account of the transfiguration is our epistle for tomorrow, Second Peter chapter 1. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we, for he received, I should say, uh, and this is actually to the, the uh, Twitch comment, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed, as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. All right, so here we have the morning star, that Old Testament reference to Micah, I think, and to Daniel for sure. Um, St. Peter confessing that that is Jesus, all right, the star that, uh, that dawns. and. Um, that he is the light that shines in the dark place, and that he is the beloved son in whom the father is well pleased. Why? Because he does the works of the father, to answer the question. All right. 
He's not well pleased in him because he does nothing, but because he does what he has been given to do, because he says the word that the Father has given him to speak. Right? Uh, Let's see. So, um, I'm not going to deal with either of those texts explicitly. Um, Well, the Exodus text I will here, actually, um, by way of um, the article on confession from the Apology to the Augsburg Confession. All right. So we have to talk about the relationship of Moses to Jesus, because both of them shine with glory. Uh, but with uh, Moses, the people demand that the, ve- that the glory be veiled. With Jesus, um, actually, we want the glory to be revealed to us. And why is that? What's the distinction between Moses and Jesus? Um, Luther has many things to write about this as well. Um, I think he has, what was it called? Something about um, how Christians ought to... Um, to understand Moses, I think is what it's called. Uh, but there's many, many such things. Yeah, I'm seeing where I should jump in here. Well, I'll just read a chunk and uh, we'll get to it here. Uh, again, this is um, from the Augsburg Confession, Article 3, Apology, um, which is the article on, actually, it's the article not on confession, it's the article on love and the fulfilling of the law. All right, sorry, I misspoke before. Furthermore, if any learned person objects that righteousness is in the will, and therefore it cannot be attributed to faith, which is in the intellect, the reply is easy. Right? So this is an argument from our adversaries. In the schools, even such persons acknowledge that the will commands the intellect to agree with God's word. We, all, we say also quite clearly, just as the terrors of sin and death are not only thoughts of the intellect, but also horrible movements of the will fleeing God's judgment, So faith is not only knowledge in the intellect, but also confidence in the will. In other words, it is to want and receive that which is offered in the promise, namely reconciliation and the forgiveness of sins. All right, so he's saying faith is not just a matter of the will, but it is also, or or only of the intellect, but it's the will and the intellect. So it's both knowledge, desire, um, directed towards reconciliation and the forgiveness of sins. Right, so faith compels. Faith is the new will. Hmm, an interesting thought. All right, Scripture uses the term faith in this way, as the following sentence in, of Paul testifies in Romans 5, verse 1. Quote, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, in this passage, to justify means, according to court language, to acquit a guilty person and to declare him righteous. That's what it means to justify. To acquit a guilty person, and declare him righteous. But this happens because of the righteousness of another, namely of Christ. Right? So we are acquitted not for our own sake, but for Christ's sake. This righteousness is communicated to us through faith. Therefore, since our righteousness in this passage is the credit of the righteousness of another, we must here speak about righteousness in a way different than in philosophy or in a civil court. Right? So there is the civil court understanding of righteousness, and there's righteousness in a philosophical thing, right doing. Right, but we're going to speak in another way here. Um, parentheses, there we seek after the righteousness of one's own work, which uh, certainly is in the will. So St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, quote, He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And in 2 Corinthians 5 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But because Christ's righteousness is given to us through faith, faith is righteousness credited to us. In other words, 
It is that by which we are made acceptable to God on account of the credit and ordinance of God. As St. Paul says, faith is counted as righteousness, Romans 4. Although, because of certain hard-to-please people, we must say technically, faith is truly righteousness because it is obedience to the gospel. For it is clear that the obedience to the command of a superior is truly a kind of distributive justice. This obedience to the gospel is credited for righteousness. So only because of this, because we grasp Christ as the atoning sacrifice, are good works or obedience to the law pleasing. Right? So without faith, um, our works are filthy rags, as Paul says. Um, and obedience to the law, obedience to even the law of Moses, is nothing apart from faith in Christ, right? Because the law only accuses. <laughs> the law only shows us our sin. Apart from faith, um, there can be no obedience. All right. That is faith in Christ's obedience. Um, so, we do not satisfy the law, but for Christ's sake, this is forgiven us, as St. Paul says. Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, verse 1. This faith gives God the honor, gives God that which is his own. By receiving the promises, it obeys him. Just as Paul also says, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, Romans 4, 20. So, the worship and divine service of the gospel is to receive gifts from God. On the contrary, the worship of the law is to offer and present our gifts to God. Right? So there's a key difference between Moses and Jesus. But Jesus, the worship and divine service of the gospel is to receive gifts from God. Jesus purchases and wins for us salvation and distributes that to us in his gifts, by his word, through faith, right? which is different than Moses. On the, the worship of the law, the worship of Moses, is to offer and present our gifts to God, which are never satisfying, which never are complete, right? Um, which never fulfill the demands that are made. And sacrifices are made repeatedly over and over according to the Old Covenant, according to the law. Christ says this of this worship. Oh, Christ says of this worship, quote, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6, verse 40. And the Father says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Matthew 17, verse 5. The adversaries speak of obedience to the law, but they do not speak of obedience to the gospel. We cannot obey the law unless we have been born again through the gospel. We cannot love God unless we have received the forgiveness of sins. For as long as we feel that he is angry with us, our human nature runs away that's the will again, runs away from his anger and judgment. If anyone should object that this view of faith, which desires the things offered by the promise, becomes confused with hope, we answer as follows. Hope expects promised things, and hope and faith cannot be separated in reality. So faith is hope in reality. Right? Such needless debate takes place in the schools. The epistle to the Hebrews defines faith as, quote, the assurance, the expectatio of things hoped for. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Yet if anyone wants a distinction between faith and hope, we say that the object of hope is properly a future event, but faith is concerned with future and present things. Faith receives the forgiveness of sins offered in the promise in the present. In the present. All right. So uh, this distinction, it's the distinction of law and gospel. It's the distinction of Moses and Jesus. It's the distinction of, um, of works and faith, right? must be made and must be made clearly right and so what uh, what peter does you know hear this in the mountain transfiguration tomorrow is peter confuses 
why Jesus is there. Because Peter wants to set up another tabernacle, right? Or temple on the mountain. Actually, he suggests three tabernacles, but the point is still the same. Why? As objects for he and James and John and the rest of the disciples and any who else would be interested to come and offer their worship to him. But what we notice with Jesus is um, is actually a reversal. Rather than we coming and offering our sacrifices um, to Jesus, which would never be sufficient, rather he comes and sacrifices himself and offers himself to the world for atonement, for forgiveness. Right. So instead of being active, now we are passive in faith. We are receivers. We are gift receivers. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to be a receiver of Christ. And you say, well, then what about my activity? Yeah, activity is a fruit of faith, right? But as a Christian, uh, your eyes, your focus, your attention, your will, your intellect is focused on, is, is all hyper-focused, really, on the receiving of Jesus. Here in prayer, um, in confession of faith, in acts of love and mercy for, for the neighbor, which are a confession of faith, right? In divine service, in, in praying and singing, um, this is all to receive Jesus' word and his gifts, um, to live in, in, in the baptism, in that reception of baptism daily, dying and rising, um, to receive forgiveness, life, and salvation in Christ's body and blood in the sacrament. So there's really there really is a, a dramatic difference between um, the worship and the, or the liturgy under the law and under the gospel. They are different. Right? Under the law, it's all sacrifice. Under the gospel, it's all sacrament, gift-giving gifts from God for you, all right? So it, you can't make a, 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 too much of this distinction. And I have um, a sinking suspicion, <laughs> no, I know it's true, uh, that many, even in our own congregation, still think of divine service by way of the law. What must I do to be saved, right? And the answer is, believe and be baptized. Receive, not do, receive, right? Think of Acts uh, chapter two, that's Peter's sermon at Pentecost. What must I do? Actually, do nothing. Receive um, from Jesus. And even the receiving is, is worked in you by the Holy Spirit. So even that you can't take credit for. Everything is, is for God's glory. Uh, and that was, that's what makes Christian worship different. And this is why I'm always kind of um, confused by people who are, well, I'm not confused. I understand um, through this lens uh, why those who neglect to receive in divine services, because they think of divine service as their service to God rather than God's service to them, rather than seeing um, participation in, in the, the mysteries that are delivered in, in, in our sanctuary, um, in, our, in our daily prayer, in our, in our life together as Christians, as seeing that as all reception, they see it as obligation or as duty. They see it in way of Moses. That's why they don't want to be in church, because they, they're, the, they're just like the people of old who asked Moses to veil their face and stop talking to them because they don't want any more things to do. Well, that's not what this is about. This is more things to receive, right? And it's not under obligation or duty. It's, it's a free gift um, worked by faith. So um, that's the distinction between Moses and Jesus. And we see it at the Mount of Transfiguration. And Peter um, is confused. And so that's why the glory then is hidden again. And Jesus alone is standing. And the Father says, listen to him. In other words, receive from him the gifts, the word which the Father has given him to deliver to you. All right. Let's sing our hymn. Before we do that, though, um, I told you this was is quite a popular hymn in, in, in Germany, but um, only recently has made it into uh, English for us. So I'll share a little bit about that background for you. 
Erdmann Neumeister, 1671 to 1756, published this text for the fourth Sunday in Advent. That's interesting. Um, in his 1718 collection of original hymns for the church year, the Evangelischer Nachklang. Not only was Neumeister an innovative poet, having adapted madrigal forms to create the cantata form. Ooh, that's interesting. I'd like to know more. But he also, but he, he was also a Lutheran theologian who stood upon the biblical teaching as expressed in the Book of Concord. In, in this role, he confronted pietism with its reliance upon the heart instead of the work of God in word and sacraments, in preaching, teachings, writings, cantata, librettos, and hymns. Right? So if you remember, uh, it's a big part of our tradition is the cantata. And this would be a, uh, would function in the place of the hymn of the day. It would include the hymn of the day. So the hymn of the day then would have a whole exposition um, of maybe the gospel text or there would be a libretto um, attached. So uh, I'm looking at one here. I'll just pull one up here. Um, so this is a Bach cantata, uh, BWV 6 or 131 in English. From the deep, Lord, I cried to thee, right? So you can guess what the hymn is. From depths of woe, I cried to thee, right? Um, and so that's the opening chorale sung by the choir. And then there's a duet. And then there's arioso um, with chorale, an aria with a choral, and then a final chorus, which the congregation would join in on, right? For the hymn of the day, right? There's other cantatas here. I've got many of them in front of me. Sometimes there's an alto aria or a bass arioso, or a soprano orioso, a tenor, these are different forms. Or even an opening uh, sonatina, so a little sonnet, um, sonata, I should say, by um, maybe a, a string group or something like that. Right. So it was part of the divine service. So he wrote some of those, too. Neumeister's hymns exude reliance upon God's work, not the work of man. In the case of this hymn, God's great work in holy baptism is lauded. Robert E. Velker born in 1957, I think he's still living, living. Might, might be a Facebook friend, <laughs> um, translated Neumeister's hymn in 1991, and it was included in the Evangelical Lutheran Hymnary, 1996, of the Evangelical Lutheran Synod, and then also in Missouri Synod's Hymnal Supplement, 1998, and now, of course, in Lutheran Service Book. So, I mean, he's a ELS pastor. We have dialogues with, we're not in fellowship with, um, haven't been since the 30s, but uh, um, you might think Bethany College in uh, in uh, Minnesota, is part of the ELS. All right. Now that's probably enough right there. Uh, the tune, by the way, is called Bachhoven. Um, origin is Switzerland. Johann Kasper Bachhoven is the uh, composer. And it was originally uh, composed for Jesu der du meine Seele, which is a different hymn. But it, it does work pretty well here. All right. Let's sing. I am baptized into 
Christ. He, because I could not pay it, gave my full redemption price. Do I need his treasures many? I have one worth more than any that brought me salvation free, blessing to eternity. Sin disturb my soul no longer, I am baptized in to Christ. I have comfort even stronger, Jesus cleansing sacrifice. Should a guilty conscience seize me, since my baptism did release me, in a dear forgiving flood, sprinkling me with Jesus' blood. Satan, hear this proclamation, I am baptized into Christ. Drop your ugly accusation, I am not so soon enticed. Now that to the font I've traveled, all your might have come unraveled, and all against your tears. God, my Lord, unites with me. Death, you cannot end my gladness. I am baptized into Christ. When I die, I leave all sadness. You inherit paradise. Though I lie in dust and ashes, face assurance brightly flashes, baptism has strength divine to make life immortal mine. There is nothing worth comparing to this lifelong comfort sure. Open wide my grave is staring, even there asleep secure. Though my flesh awaits its raising, still my soul continues praising. I am baptized to Christ, I'm a child of paradise. All right. Now you can look forward to the next time we'll sing that. Uh, I think it's in a few weeks. Yeah, I think uh, the... Uh, is it on Quinquagasima? I believe I have it planned. <laughs> Coming up. All right. So you'll be ready to sing it. Good. Let's pray. Collect for the week. Almighty and everlasting God, mercifully look upon our infirmities and stretch forth the hand of your majesty to heal and defend us. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, through your word and spirit, you call us to daily contrition and repentance, that our sin, uh, for our sin, that the old Adam in us should be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires. Work true repentance in our hearts every day. Teach us to confess our sins and flee to Christ for our life and salvation. By your word of forgiveness, 
Raise up the new man of faith in us, that we might live before you in righteousness and purity forever. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We pray this day for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord have mercy. Pray for those celebrating today their birthday, especially Larissa. Also, those rejoicing in their baptism, both Julie and Larissa again. Pray for the households of our church, especially Doug, Tom and Sandy, Stephen and Jackie, Jodine, Lenore, and Sean. Pray for our Lutheran Day School and Thanksgiving, as well for the children's song. Pray for our catechumens. We pray for those ill receiving treatment or recovering, especially Marcella, Joe, Kelsey, Walt, Naomi, Christopher, Dan, and Brad, Ron, Betty, Cheryl, and Pat, Merlin, Heidi, Dick, and Karen. Pray for our homebound, Ed, Paul, and Pauline. We pray for the missions and mercy work of the church, especially the urban ministry of our district. Pray for our relatives and benefactors. For all this, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings and life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All right. Good joy to have you with us here today to uh, hear God's word, to study it in some depth, to prepare for tomorrow's divine service, to receive God's word um, for our benefit and edification. Um, I'm going to take a little bit different tack than what you heard in our conversation today as far as the distinction between Moses um, and Jesus. Uh, but think more in terms of um, the glory and where we seek glory. All right, but you'll have to look forward to. You have to wait till tomorrow for that. Okay, uh, tomorrow we do have uh, obviously divine service at nine thirty, and uh, you know, do your best. I understand there might be some snow overnight, so we'll see how that goes. We do have a brief uh, voters assembly after divine service. We're presenting a candidate um, for a, a call um, to be teacher here next year and a solid candidate, I think would be a great addition uh, to our staff. If you remember, we tried to call two people last year. We only call, we only hired one who quit after a week. So we've been down two staff all year. We've done just, well, we've done all right. Although I think Marla would tell you um, there's been a lot of neglect um, in areas that just had to be set aside um, until, and, and, and her life has been quite difficult um, really carrying a double load. So, um, so we definitely want to call at least one, if not two. And so we'll be looking um, to, for congregational approval tomorrow after divine service. So um, stay for that. Of course, Bible study will be into Ezekiel, the next part. Uh, back to more difficult Ezekiel, but that's okay. Um, we always, always find a way to, to hear a promise. Uh, there's that, even if it's only an echo, it's there of redemption, of salvation, of a remnant being preserved of faith um, being um, kept until 
the people are delivered. All right. So you can look forward to that as well. So uh, blessings on your day. Uh, I hope to see you in the morning. God be with you all. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sermon Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.